Uh, turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. And if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one under the chairs in front of you. You're going to find Ephesians 4 on page 948. As I said last week, before we turn our full attention to the heart of the Christmas season, we're staying in Ephesians. This is the last Sunday for a little bit uh, because we want to finish this thought of the Apostle Paul as he's telling us how to grow up, not individually, but collectively as a church family. Nothing he says in chapter 4 is on an individual level. Uh, Though you, in verse 1, we don't have this capacity in the English language except in the deep south, y'all need to live worthy lives. It's plural. It's a community. And then what he follows that with only makes sense as it's practiced and honed and lived out in community. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Those don't make sense with me, myself, and I. Those are put to the test, and very often we fail when we try to exhibit those in community. And then in verses 4 to 6, Paul highlights the unity that followers of Christ share, one, 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 one. But then he shows there's also diversity, verses 7 through 11. There are these gifts that the king gives to each person, apportioning it as he sees fit, And there's a variety of those gifts, verse 11. He highlights five leadership gifts that the king gives to the church. But back to unity, they're all given for the singular purpose of leaders equipping God's people for the works of service or for ministry so that, singular purpose, we might taste unity and maturity. Last week, we uh, in How to Grow Up, part one, We focused on verse 12, this teaching that leaders, the role of leaders in the church is not to do the ministry, but it's to equip God's people, all of us, for the work of ministry. This morning, we'll continue to see how the church moves towards maturity according to the measure of the fullness of Christ. Let's read Ephesians 4, starting in verse 11. Listen carefully. These are God's words. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is, Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Lord, we marvel that you've woven us into the fabric of your body. Jesus, you're the head. 
You grant us this privilege of being members of your body, of being connected, of drawing lifeblood from you, and of serving you, doing this work, the King's work. So for Grace Redeemer Church, Lord, we pray, enable us to grow up, to taste richer unity, to progress towards maturity, that we might look like you, Jesus. We pray in your name. Amen. We're talking about biblical church growth. But as we said last Sunday, we need to be careful to not associate biblical church growth with attendance figures, with a a gorgeous new building with budget numbers or satellite locations or any kind of measure that people might come up with to say, wow, that church is growing. They're doing amazing things. Biblical church growth instead has everything to do with unity and maturity. And ironically, the first thing maturity involves is infancy. That's where we start this morning, where life begins Verse 14 assumes that starting point when it says, then we will no longer be infants. You could translate that word children, little children. So, uh, when we grow up and, verse 13, become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ, that's a picture of reaching a certain mark, of, of attaining to some standard. Not unlike a father might say to his little children, when you grow up like daddy, you'll be able to mow the lawn, put these things together, whatever it may be. When you graduate from college, then you'll be able to pay your own bills, things like that, right? You're reaching a certain mark, which verse 13 tells us is the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. We're not there yet. And given what Paul says in verse 14, that means if you want to grow towards spiritual maturity… To look like the Savior, you need to be spiritually reborn. This is what Jesus says to uh, the Pharisee Nicodemus when he comes to uh, visit Jesus at night. Jesus says with great emphasis, very truly, literally, amen, amen, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. You need to start over. You need to be reborn. And then Jesus says, That's the work of the Holy Spirit in you to bring about rebirth. Even the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, when He took upon Himself human flesh, experienced infancy. We're very familiar with that. That's at the heart of the Christmas narrative. That's reflected in manger scenes under your tree and um, on other pieces of furniture. And as familiar as it is, as Erica led us in um, before singing the first Noel, it can't become so familiar that we lose the awe. We lose a sense of the astounding reality that has come. The eternal son became a baby, helpless in his infancy. So it's no insult when the Apostle Peter writes in his first letter, like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. 
It's no insult. Because not only is there nothing wrong with spiritual infancy, we could say being a spiritual infant is the gracious result of God's initiating, saving act, intervening to rescue sinners like us. The very fact that He would give us a new birth, a new starting point, is at the heart of salvation. And we could put it this way. One proof of God's love for you is that you become a baby, a little child. Um, Why is that relevant to us? To continue to think through, to continue to realize the implications of. Because Christianity is not something you simply tack onto your life. It's not a module that's added. It's, It's not a new merit badge that you've earned. It's not a promotion Um, or a raise that you have merited through your own hard work, through your wisdom and ingenuity and talent and skill. It's not a hobby or an interest that uh, gets a slot in your very busy calendar. Becoming a Christian involves instead the, the complete renovation of your entire being. Rebirth means that you start from square one. And so that means whatever success you may Uh, tastes at school or in the workplace, whatever uh, awards and trophies and and promotions you have earned, none of that means anything in the kingdom of God. God is not impressed when you hold up the best that this world has to offer that you have earned because it's all of grace. He's enabled you to do that, and sin taints it all. So leaders in the workplace aren't automatically qualified to be leaders in the church just because they've been competent, just because they've led organizations, just because they've had a following. That means nothing in the kingdom of God. Teachers in the academy don't necessarily automatically become qualified, excellent teachers in the church because we all start from square one when we're reborn in Christ Growth towards maturity in Christ is expected. No less than a baby you hold in your arms today shouldn't be holdable, shouldn't be as immature five years from now. If they are, something's very wrong. Speaking of babies, we need to think a little bit more about what babies look like, how they act. Uh, First, think about baby babies. If you don't have one in your life, if you're not an uncle or an aunt or a, a parent or a grandparent, there are a lot around here. You can just borrow one. <laughs> Ask to grab one. Hold him or her up. Study babyhood. What are you like? And you'll find a few things in common among all babies. Uh, one thing is that babies are not discerning. They're not discerning. You need to watch them because whatever they can get their chubby little hands on it goes right in their mouth. Before you know it, they're they're finding things you didn't know existed underneath the couch, behind the bookcase, and so many things that they will find um, are are incredibly dangerous for them, right? Like the dish soap underneath the kitchen sink that sure looks like tasty fruit punch goes right in the mouth, or the, the power strip with all those little holes that invite chubby little fingers to get stuck in them. They're not discerning. They don't know right from wrong, helpful from harmful. A uh, second thing you'll find when you study a baby is that little ones are utterly selfish. 
and we don't hold that against them. There's something quite natural because they're grasping the realities of the world, but when they're hungry and when they're tired, they want what they want. And when they look over and mommy is holding someone else's baby, watch out, that's my mommy. Those are my arms that comfort me and rock me to sleep. When you pull out a toy, whether they've ever seen it or not, whether they have any idea what it can do, whether it belongs to them or not, they want it. There's the universal look in their eyes and the hands uh, held out, expecting that you're going to hand it to them so they can explore. Babies are inherently selfish. We understand that. And then uh, one more thing we could say about babies is they're not steady. When they start crawling, they do face plants because of just a little crease in the carpet. They're down they go. When they, start talk, when they start walking, they have no idea how big their head is, and it finds sharp corners, and they don't know how their big noggin throws off their center of gravity, and down they go. They wobble, and it's part of the cuteness. What's Paul saying here? When he says, then we will no longer be infants, verse 14, he's saying when you grow up into Christ-like maturity, you won't be like that anymore. All those things that are cute about babies are not cute about you when you're grown up uh, or, or as you are growing up, as you are maturing, less and less so inherent selfishness becomes a problem, doesn't it? Paul says when you grow up into Christ-like maturity, you won't be like that anymore. Spiritual babies are vulnerable. We'll hit these one at a time, right? They're not discerning. Um. So, a charismatic spiritual leader can convince spiritual babies to believe something that resembles the truth, that sounds like it could be good and right, but is actually incredibly destructive. That's how cults begin, right? Something resembles the truth and is very attractive, but is oh so very wrong. Lack of discernment leads spiritual babies to look for secondary things in a church while ignoring the primary things. Spiritual babies are looking for entertainment value or the cool factor while overlooking a church's belief system and healthy leadership and gospel culture. Spiritual babyhood can lead to um, church hopping, sampling this church's music, that church's live streaming preaching, this church's singles ministry. For one church, the key to ministry might be serving the poor. For another, it might be memorizing Scripture. For another, it might be giving sacrificially. For the, still another, it might be we're going to keep you busy and out of trouble. And there's nothing inherently wrong with any of those elements, but it all sounds like fad diets that promises quick weight loss. And we know growing out of babyhood, physical fitness, spiritual maturity, neither one has quick shortcuts. They don't exist. Um, Secondly, spiritual babies need to hear, especially in verse 2, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Babies are selfish. They need to hear this. Or as Paul writes to the Philippians, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. Baby babies and spiritual babies need to hear the same thing. 
you are not the center of the universe. That's one of the most healthy things we can learn. Parents, you need to teach that to your children. And church, we need that humility to always remember it's not about us. And then thirdly, spiritual babies are not grounded well enough. Again, verse 14, that results in being tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Sounds like chaos. The winds of culture will sway you into believing, thinking, trusting that all religions are the same, that being a good enough person will get you into heaven. The winds of culture will convince you that there's no such thing as hell. Come on, that's, that's archaic. Therefore, there are no um, ramifications of whether you believe or not believe in the reality and rule of the one true God who alone deserves worship. The winds of culture will push against you and convince you that the Bible's teaching on sexuality is antiquated. It doesn't respect individual freedom to identify and express biological needs. Folks, these are not gentle breezes that will occasionally rustle up leaves on your front lawn. These are increasingly strong gale force winds that will knock you over and leave you in pieces. And again, verse 14 shows us this element of intentionality. Every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. This is war spiritual war with enemies looking to deceive you into thinking the opposite of what God's truth reveals. This is what the devil does as the deceiver, one of his key names. You're a a 21st century educated person. How could you take this ancient document literally Why would you yield your life, your priorities, what you could have in the earth's, in in the world's treasure? Why would you yield instead to the, the will of an unknown God? What has He done for you lately? You've had a hard year. How has God answered your prayers? Look at the mess of your life. All these whispers, the cunning and craftiness of people and the devil seeking to destroy. How do you resist? How do you fight back? Listen to Hebrews chapter 5. Give us a sense. Verses 13 and 14. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, there's that imagery again, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature who, by constant use, have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. Before we look at what I'll call spiritual nutrition or solid food for the mature, let me ask you to consider something. Um, Before we leave this idea of babyhood, spiritual infancy, a few rhetorical questions. How do you react to the immaturity of Christians? Maybe you're not a follower of Christ. You're not a Christian. Somebody's brought you here this morning And one of your beefs, one of the reasons you don't go to church is because you've seen too many Christians say one thing and do another. Hypocrisy, immaturity, 
they're not acting like Christians should, and so you don't want anything to do with church. And it could have happened 30 years ago, but you still won't. And you yielded this morning. We're glad you're here. Or, or maybe you come regularly, but the one thing that has you with half a foot out the door is the same. It's, you're tired of dealing with messiness and dysfunction and people um, saying one thing and looking one way on a Sunday morning, but you know their real lives, and it drives you crazy. Your temptation is, I don't want anything to do with these people. Here's my question. In light of the spiritual reality, Paul and Peter, um, or Paul and the author of Hebrews, speaking of this natural starting point from infancy to maturity in Christ, in light of this, why are you so shocked when people around you act like babies? When we've said one of the most gracious things God can do in rescuing sinners is to put you at that starting point, square one, and say, now, baby, it's time to grow up. Why are you shocked? Because this is a collection of broken, dysfunctional sinners, and whether or not we should still be um, babies or not, very often we revert to infancy, to childishness in spiritual living. What we need is not disdain. If you volunteer in the nursery, you don't say, oh my goodness, this kid pooped his diaper, you know, because that happens. It's the nursery. You don't flip out when a two-year-old grabs a toy from another two-year-old and the, the other one pulls hair back. You, you don't just tolerate it, but you, you speak gently. You shepherd. You understand this is the toddler room. Stuff happens. And, and rather than disdain and disgust, spiritually speaking, we need one another to point us towards the Savior to say, walk with me. I've been there. I've done a face plant on the rug. I've fallen and scraped my knees more times than I can count. And it's my spiritual clumsiness. Walk with me. I have the scars to prove that I know what you're dealing with. That's living like the family of God without any pretense or uh, under this illusion that everyone is cleaned up and we only have maturity to deal with not in ourselves, not in others around us. So uh, let's go thirdly to spiritual nutrition. What, what is the author of Hebrews talking about when he says, but solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. And we'll use Ephesians 4 as our guide. This is how we move towards unity and maturity. Part one last week, the king has given gifts to his church, particularly leader people gifts, to equip God's people for the work of ministry. That, part one, is how you move towards unity and maturity. Here's part two. Three things. Maturity involves doctrinal faithfulness, which provides stability. Verses 13 and 14. Verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith, the faith. Paul here is talking about the objective faith, what we believe in He's not talking about the subjective reality of each of us believing. You see the difference there? If we compare it back to verse 5, Paul said, One Lord, there is one Lord, one faith, one body of beliefs that points us heavenward. 
that reveals to us the, the path of righteousness through faith in Jesus. The true faith, solid doctrine, contrasts with false teaching. The true faith means standing upon the rock, which is Christ, and being less prone to being blown here and there by every wind of teaching. Here's another question that I'd like you to consider this morning. Do you know what you believe in? Can you explain it to someone who's never heard of Christianity? Can you explain it to the next generation? Can you defend it when it comes under attack? Do you know, in the words of the great hymn, how firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in His excellent Word? God provides all the spiritual nutrition you need to grow up strong and healthy. This is a feast laid out for you, but you need to take it in. You need to eat. As the author of Hebrews puts it, you need to um, make constant use of this by reading and memorizing and studying and then teaching which is the exercise of this gift. There are no secrets to growing to maturity. Number two, maturity requires speaking the truth in love, verse 15. Uh, the phrase there literally is, um, instead, truthing in love. It's not a word. I don't think it was a word in Greek either. Paul made it up. Instead, truthing in love. It's got this action-oriented. By the way, let me first say this. This is not an excuse to say whatever is on your mind, whatever pops into your sinful little brain, and justify it, you know. You are an absolute loser, but I'm saying that in love. Spiritual force field can't touch me. You know, that's not what Paul's saying here, okay? Um, truthing in love. On the other hand, too many members of the church because they're worried about what other people will think of you, end up saying nothing. You don't truth in love at all. You misunderstand Jesus when He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And your tendency is like, I don't want to be judged, therefore I'm never going to open my mouth. If I don't see anything about other people, they won't say anything about me. Jesus absolutely did not mean to say, don't ever say anything about another Christian's uh, words or attitude or behavior because what they do behind closed doors is their business and you stay out of it. They'll decide what's right, you decide what's right. Jesus absolutely did not mean to say that. We misunderstand Him when we take, do not judge lest you be judged in that way truthing in love, speaking the truth in love, requires balance, wisdom from God. When you speak truth in love, uh, I'm sorry, when you speak truth without love, here's what's usually going on. You're more focused on self. You're more concerned with being right, proving your point, truthing without love. And um, you fail to understand that there's a broken person, a fellow sinner who perhaps needs some tender compassion in their brokenness that you're ignoring because it's all about, I need to tell you something. I need to set you right. You need to know how wrong you are. 
and you miss an opportunity for ministry. And when you express love without truth, surprise, surprise, it's an incredibly selfish thing also. You're concerned about yourself. You don't want to look bad. You don't want people to think you're the holy roller. You're the saint. You don't want to be the one to stick your neck out, to say something that is corrective in nature, let alone rebuking in nature. Sometimes you just affirm the person, even in their sin, but most often you say nothing. You walk away. You allow distance to form between you and this other member of the growth group because you just can't deal with it anymore, and your fear of other people means you don't say anything. How do you find the balance? You start as Paul instructs, again, verse 2. This is why I love you to have your Bibles open so you can just glance up. Um, With all humility. With all humility. Be completely humble. Does that help? You are making use, constant use of the Word of God. You're feasting. You're drawing in nutrition. You're realizing none of this is me. As I'm growing, God is doing this through His Spirit, and I still revert to babyhood, and I would far more if God were not restraining me by grace. And so when I look at somebody else, I realize, yeah, I do that. Yeah, I judge people quickly. Yeah, my mouth is so quick to say things. And yes, you always mean what you say because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's like, that's not me. I I don't know why I said that. Oh, it's absolutely you. You just forgot to put the filter up to make it look better than you actually are. So when you operate with all humility, you realize, if I think that's ugly in another person, I know I'm just as ugly. And so you can come alongside someone as a fellow on-the-mend sinner and say, God has granted me grace to taste healing. Can I offer you the same? It makes all the difference in the world. You want others to taste gospel healing as you have. And you understand that God very often chooses to use you as an instrument of healing in someone else's life. Folks, I can't tell you how destructive it is when you refuse to speak to T.O., a person in their brokenness, but instead you choose to speak about the person in their brokenness. So often, whether or not it, it, it can be rightly called gossip, there are all kinds of elements of gossip. It's sprinkled with gossip. It's seasoned with gossip. And it always sours the stomach. It always corrodes the family relationships within the body. And sometimes the mess ends up getting thrown on the doorstep of pastors and elders to clean up when it didn't have to get that way. It didn't have to become that ugly. This is no surprise that at the core of Paul's instruction to the church, how to grow up, he is saying, you need to truth in love. Keep those both in balance. When Paul elsewhere writes to Timothy of the Scriptures, he says, all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. 
Absolutely, Paul knows that the Word of God, which is living and active, on its own, because it's empowered, it's spoken by God, it carries the power of God, on its own, Paul knows it will shape you into the likeness of the Savior. But Paul also knows, he expects the members of Christ's body to apply the truth of God's Word in one another's lives. Everything he says, verse four, uh, chapter 4, it's to the community, not to the individual. Thirdly, and lastly, maturity involves each part doing its work, verse 16, sharing in the work of ministry. As members of the body, we are dependent on the head, who is Christ, but we're also dependent on one another. Every, uh, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, we strengthen each other. The church is not like any other organization. The church doesn't operate uh, on what I'll call transactional relationship. You know, you do a job, you get a salary. You do a few tasks, you earn 20 bucks from your neighbor because you help clean his garage. Um, work for rewards. That's transactional. That's not the church. This is no mere club or association. Members of Christ's body do not volunteer. You know, you volunteer to, to help your neighborhood clean up the park. Whether you show up or not, it's up to you. It's a nice civic duty to chip in. That's volunteering. Whether or not you respond to the flyer that comes home in your kid's um, backpack uh, because they, they want cupcakes to be donated for the next day's school fundraiser, whether or not you are, whether or not you do volunteer, it's up to you. It's a nice thing to do to contribute to the cause. That is not what happens in the church of Jesus Christ. We don't volunteer. Why do I say that? Because when you serve the king who is the head of the church, it's his body, you're organically connected to one another. Elsewhere, Paul says that the hand cannot say to the, uh, the, the, the eyes, I don't need you. There's no such thing. There's, there's no useless parts in the spiritual body. And what strengthens that picture is that the king, when you serve the church, you are faithfully putting into practice the grace gifts, these spiritual treasures that the king has uniquely and wisely apportioned to each one of you. He has said, this is what I'm going to give you. And what he expects is that you invest it, you steward it, you exercise it, not for your own profit, but for the benefit of the king and his kingdom. But along the way, we're not left out in the cold. Just like children who follow in their parents' footsteps, you begin to look more like the king. Verse 13, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ as each part does its work. And here's the miracle. My last word. The most costly and necessary work of all has already been accomplished by the king who came in humility, who lived a perfect life, who died a criminal's death on a cross and rose victorious. And as the triumphant king, what does he do? He doesn't receive gifts from his followers. He dispenses them 
that we might be empowered to do his work. May Jesus Christ be praised. Let's pray. Lead on, O King Eternal. You are the one who has triumphed over sin and death. And you lead us into freedom and forgiveness. You lead us into newness of life. Yes, first as spiritual babies, but you long for us to grow up into Christ. And one day, you promise, not only will we see you face to face, but we will be like Jesus. What a miracle you are at work doing. What a story you are at work telling all by gospel grace. We worship you this day in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.